From KGW News, this is Straight Talk with Laurel Porter. Hello and welcome to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. This week, U.S. Transportation Secretary and former Democratic presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg and Oregon Congressman Peter DeFazio made a stop together in Oregon. They're on a three-state tour promoting the president's bipartisan infrastructure jobs plan and a separate human infrastructure plan that so far has only Democratic support. I had the chance to sit down for a one-on-one -on -one interview with Secretary Buttigieg in Springfield earlier this week. You'll hear from him in just a moment. And later, Olympics expert and Pacific University political science professor Jules Boykoff joins us with a look ahead to the Tokyo Olympics that start here on NBC and KGW next Friday. First, here's my conversation with U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg and what's in the infrastructure plans for the Northwest. Thank you so much, Secretary Buttigieg, for joining us here on Straight Talk to talk about the president's infrastructure vision. It's nice to have you here in Oregon. It's great to be with you, and we're very pleased to be on the ground in Oregon. People are accustomed calling you Mayor Pete. Are you getting used to this new title, Mr. Secretary? Uh, yeah, you know, folks still call me Mayor Pete sometimes, and I take it as a compliment. You know, I was just with the mayors of uh, uh, each of the communities we visited today, uh, uh, Corvallis and, and uh, Eugene and Springfield, and, you know, the job's only become more demanding since I had it. And part of what we're trying to do, of course, is support local communities doing the work, but I'm delighted to be able to do it now as, as Secretary. Well, thank you for being here, and I, I want to talk to you about your objectives. So you're stopping here in Oregon, your first stop, then you go to Phoenix, tomorrow and then to Chicago. Why those three stops and what is your objective? Well, what we're finding is that the story of American infrastructure is playing out in different communities in different ways, but everybody's got so much at stake in modernizing the infrastructure we have and putting in what we don't have but need, like electric vehicle chargers. Otherwise, we're never going to be able to win the future. I think it's especially striking here in Oregon, where we've seen the consequences of climate change uh, from this uh, extreme and terrible heat wave uh, to, to the fires that uh, so many communities are struggling with, but also local leadership and state leadership that, that's really on the cutting edge of what can be done around safety, uh, around creating good options for transit and, and biking and, and pedestrian movement, as well as making it safe to travel in a vehicle. Uh, thinking really uh, about what the next 50 or 100 years should look like in a country that's still relying on infrastructure that was often built 50 or 100 years ago. We have two separate bills. It's a little bit confusing on two yeah. different tracks. One is a bipartisan deal the president struck with Republicans. It's a smaller package. It deals with physical infrastructure like roads and bridges, rail, the electrical vehicle, charging stations. And then you have this much bigger package. I think yeah. I saw it was $3.5 trillion at last check that deals with something the president calls human infrastructure, social safety net things that only has democratic support. You're hoping to get it through a reconciliation process. So let's start with the first bill, that physical infrastructure one. What's the status of that bill? So uh, it was an extraordinary thing in today's Washington to see a group of Democratic senators and Republican stand senators standing with a uh, Democratic president saying, we have a deal. Uh, so we're thrilled by this bipartisan agreement. Now, still needs to be turned into legislation, voted on, sent to the president's desk, and all the ins and outs of that are uh, playing out over these days and, and weeks that we're in. But the bottom line is uh, we have bipartisan agreement on a vision that would represent the biggest investment in our roads and bridges since the Eisenhower era. 
the biggest investment in public transit that we've ever had as a country at the federal level. Most we've ever done for uh, passenger rail since Amtrak was created in the first place. The measures to get lead out of the pipes that take drinking water to our kids, getting broadband internet to everybody, all of these things brought together in legislation that's also going to create so many good paying jobs across the country. So we're thrilled about it and, and even more thrilled that uh, there's a chance to have, uh, in a time when this is so rare, have Republicans and Democrats working together on something. There are clearly other areas where we're not going to agree, but on this, we think we can get it done. When we think about Oregon and Southwest Washington and infrastructure, we often think about the I-5 bridge. It connects both states over the Columbia River. It's been discussed for years trying to replace it because it's been called uh, functionally obsolete. It won't stand up in a major earthquake. What are the chances funding will be included in this physical infrastructure package for a replacement bridge? Well, this is an example of, of a piece of major infrastructure that a whole region in many ways economically depends on that has been allowed over time to age and, uh, and needs swift attention. It's one of the reasons why the president's vision called for dollars to address many of the most economically significant bridges around the country. Uh, and it's why there's a very robust, I think, $109 billion uh, roads and, and bridges component to this bipartisan framework so that there are more resources for projects uh, addressing things like this bridge and, and those like it around the country. So no guarantees that this bridge will be included? Well, we didn't build the, the package on a project-by-project project level, but it's certainly the, the kind of thing we have in mind when we talk about repairing and improving America's aging infrastructure. You talked about climate change, and we had this deadly heat wave recently, 116 degrees in Portland. You probably noticed the smoke when you came into Eugene, yeah. severe drought. How dire do you think it is? How critical to address climate change? And what does this bill do to address climate change and help this issue, the situation? Well, this is going to make a huge difference on climate change. Uh, I, I know we're talking about it as a transportation or infrastructure bill rather than a climate bill, but the reality is transportation is the single biggest contributor of greenhouse gases in the American economy. So we know that it's got to be the single biggest part of the solution by doing things like creating uh, more ways to use transit so you don't have to take a car everywhere you go by making it easier to adopt electric vehicles. So when you're in your car, it's, it's also part of the solution. These are some of the things that are, uh, that are part of this package. You know, the things we saw, like the heat wave here in Oregon, uh, these, are, these are the kind of extreme effects that we used to think might happen in the middle of the 21st century if we didn't act. Instead, they're happening right now. It shows the urgency of this issue and also why we need to invest in resilience, something else that's part of the framework. Because no matter how good we get at fighting climate change, it's already here and there are measures that we've got to take so that we don't have roads getting washed out or uh, transportation, transit infrastructure literally getting fried or melting like uh, uh, what was at risk of happening in Portland. They had to shut down transit because it was literally too hot for it to function. And uh, there are, again, examples of this in different forms in every part of the country. The second bill is the human infrastructure bill that's trickier. It only has Democratic support. It's much bigger, $3.5 trillion, got a lot put into it that didn't get into the first bill. Deals with things like uh, preschool, universal preschool, uh, free community college, expanded Medicare, paid family and medical leave, something uh, that Republicans are opposed to, some of these social safety net measures and the way that Democrats want to pay for it. They also are opposed to linking these two bills, the bipartisan bill and the, the one that's got Democratic support. Can you tell Republicans that those two bills won't be linked, that the bipartisan bill can pass 
without necessarily passing the one that involves the human infrastructure, much bigger package? Well, first of all, I'm not willing to accept the idea that no Republicans will support this, and I'll tell you why. Around the country, uh, there are many Republicans who support it. If you, if you look across America, last time I checked, more than two-thirds of Republicans said we ought to do these kinds of investments in the care economy, for example. The idea of paid family leave is something that the vast majority of Americans Democrats, independents, and Republicans think we ought to do. We're one of the very few countries in the world, rich, poor, or otherwise, that don't. Uh, so whether we're talking about paid family leave, community college, uh, pre-kindergarten education, uh, or several other things, I'm not willing to give up on the idea that Republicans should vote for it. Now, that being said, so far, there's not a lot of support on the other side of the aisle. Uh, these are separate packages. And you know, early on, when we were proposing these things as a whole, I talked to a lot of Republicans who said, yeah, of course I'm, I'm, I'm for childcare. I just don't think it's infrastructure and it should be in a separate package. Well, now it is in a separate package, so I'm hoping they'll support it now. So you can't say that they're going to be linked because Nancy Pelosi has said that the bipartisan bill won't pass the House unless the other bill, the bigger package, the human infrastructure package, passes through the Senate. Well, uh, House and Senate leadership will have to decide when to put what on the floor and some of the mechanics. But ultimately, they, they are separate packages. But of course, uh, we hope and expect that they'll both pass, that they'll both get to the president, and he wants to sign them both. Let's talk about how to pay for it, because that's another thing Republicans aren't really happy about, raising the corporate income tax. They say it weakens President Trump's 2017 tax cuts, would hurt the economy. Do you support raising the corporate income tax to pay for some of this massive bill? The president's American Jobs Plan called for the corporate tax rate to go to 28%. Just to be clear, that's lower than it's been for most of my lifetime, but it's enough to get the job done. The president only really drew one red line around taxes, and it was this. He's not going to raise taxes on anyone making less than $400,000 a year, especially because you don't have to, to fund this vision. Even though this is very ambitious, again, getting everybody paid family leave, getting uh, child care, and then in the transportation area, all the things I talked about, roads, bridges, airports, you name it. The truth is we can do this in a way that doesn't add to the deficit and doesn't hit most Americans just by getting corporations and the wealthy to pay their fair share. That's how much has been taken off the table in this period of exploding inequality. And again, most Americans actually think we ought to do this. The American economy was very, very competitive. It, when you had Reagan-era or Bush-era tax rates in the 30s. We're saying it ought to be 28%. But you know there are a lot of different ways to get there. The president's been very flexible on that. Uh, the important thing, again, is just that one red line that we can't ask ordinary Americans to pay more because they're paying enough. Because I, when I told people I was going to be interviewing you, a lot of them said, you know, ask them about how much it's going to cost. We're talking over $4 trillion between these two packages. Are you concerned about that adding to the national debt? What do you tell Americans who are worried about the country spending that much more money on top of all the coronavirus relief packages that cost trillions? Well, we're paying right now for the cost of having inferior infrastructure. We're not even in the top 10 anymore. We're 13th and falling. Uh, Americans pay an invisible pothole tax, I call it, every day just from the damage that's happening to cars uh, from having roads be in bad shape. We will not have a competitive economy unless we have first-rate infrastructure. And for the richest country in the world to be asking itself, can we afford to have decent roads? Or can we afford to have decent childcare? Just doesn't make any sense. Of course we can afford it. I have to ask you before we go, because you ran for president in 2020, any thoughts about 2024? What are the odds that you might run for president again in the next election? I'm looking forward to supporting President Biden and uh, so honored to be part of his team. And as we wrap up, a final thought for our viewers? 
You know, uh, I'm just thrilled to be here. I mean, uh, this is a community uh, and, and a, a state where there are so many forward-thinking leaders and uh, a real secret weapon for, for uh, this state in uh, Chair Peter DeFazio, who's chairing the Transportation Infrastructure Committee. Uh, the U.S. House just passed his INVEST uh, bill, which is uh, a sweeping vision for the future of transportation in this country. And uh, I'm very glad I took up his invitation to come out here because it's uh, just a wonderful place to visit. Well, we are so glad to have you here, Secretary Buttigieg. Thank you for joining us here on Straight Talk. Thank you, it's a treat. Thank you. And coming up next, we look ahead to the Olympic Games in Tokyo, Japan, with Olympics expert, Pacific University professor, Jules Boykoff. We're back in two minutes. Welcome back to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. The Summer Olympic Games in Tokyo, Japan begin on NBC and here on KGW in just a week. The opening ceremony is Friday, July 23rd, with the closing ceremony Sunday, August 8th. Many of you have watched the Olympic trials here on KGW, as many athletes with Northwest ties have qualified to compete on Team USA. The Games were postponed for a year by COVID, and there's been controversy surrounding the Games ever since and they've been a political flashpoint in Japan. Jules Boykoff, a political scientist who studies the Olympics, called for the games to be canceled, saying holding them during a global public health crisis has potentially lethal consequences. Boykoff is a professor at Pacific University. He's written four books on the Olympics, including Power Games, a political history of the Olympics. He also played professional soccer and represented the U.S. Olympic soccer team. He's been described as a speedy wingback who was inducted into the Wisconsin Soccer Hall of Fame. We have been fortunate to have him as our guest here on Straight Talk before all the Olympic Games over the last 10 years, and we're pleased to have him here again for these Tokyo Olympics. Jules, welcome back to Straight Talk. It's wonderful to be back. Thank you. Well, Jules, every Olympic Games seems to have its own character and controversy. How would you describe the 2021 Tokyo Olympics? Well, the Tokyo 2020 Olympics, as they insist on still calling it, has been a cascade of calamities. Uh, there is a state of emergency in effect in Tokyo that will be in effect during the games. The vaccination rate in Japan is only hovering around 20%. There is 80% opposition to hosting the Olympics this summer. There have been street protests, even targeting the International Olympic Committee, who are not exactly Mr. Popular in Japan right now. Medical officials in the country are jumping up and down, clamoring for the games to be canceled. And even some medical officials have slammed the COVID protocols that are in place by the International Olympic Committee as not meeting best scientific practices. So we are in uncharted territory in Olympics land. And Jules, now the decision, there won't be any fans at all allowed at the games. What's your take on that? Well, that was a hard fought battle by medical professionals inside of Japan, including Japan's top COVID advisor, Shigeru Omi, who really put himself out there and said this was not a good idea. Finally, he was listened to, and this is definitely the right decision in terms of the medical side of things. After all, uh, the vaccination rate being so low, it could be a real super spreader type event. For the athletes, though, it, it can be tough. I mean, you usually can work off of that energy from the crowd. That will not be there, and that'll definitely be one of the big narratives moving forward. Well, help us understand the politics behind the decision to go forward with the games in Tokyo. Who was for it and who was against it? Sure. Well, the major force that is for hosting an Olympics during a global health pandemic is the International Olympic Committee. 
they have tremendous power in this situation. In fact, the host city agreement that Tokyo signed with the International Olympic Committee states very clearly that it's only the IOC, as they're known, that has the power to cancel these games. Why aren't they canceling them, notwithstanding everything we've been talking about so far? I hate to say it, but it's kind of because of money. I mean, they are uh, get most of their revenues from broadcaster fees as well as corporate sponsors. And if they turn off that golden spigot, they might be in a world of hurt economically. So that kind of sets things up. The losers, well, we sort of remains to be seen. There are numerous athletes who are very concerned about what's happening moving forward. They're arriving now in droves in Tokyo, getting tested on a daily basis. Let's just keep our fingers crossed that this does not turn into a super spreader event for their sake and for everybody else, including everyday working people in Japan, where there's a lot of concern right now. How do the geopolitical concerns figure in with Beijing uh, holding the Olympics for the Winter Olympics just six months after these Olympics? That's a great question. And, you know, I'm talking about the money, but there are other geopolitical factors involved. First of all, I should say, organizers in Tokyo do have an incentive to pull off this event under very difficult conditions. They could have a lot of pride from doing that. But I think you're really putting your finger on the main factor here. Beijing will be hosting the 2022 Winter Games only six months after the Tokyo Games conclude. And of course, China and Japan are longtime geopolitical adversaries. It'd be very difficult for those in Japan to sort of pass the torch, if you will, to Beijing on, and not have it go well in Tokyo first. We're taping this on Thursday afternoon, so just a week from Friday are the opening ceremony. Uh, what would you say the general mood inside Japan is right now about these games? Well, first, let me say, as someone who studied the Olympics for a long time, typically when we get to this juncture, everyone's getting excited about the Olympics. There are certainly anti-Olympics protesters, but they tend to get drowned out by the excitement at this point. Not this time around. Uh, the mood is pretty dour right now. There's a ton of concern on the ground in Japan. As athletes and other officials have streamed into the country, there have been cases of coronavirus so far more than 20 at this point in July alone. And so there's a lot of concern in Japan around that. You touched on this, but let's dig into this a little bit more. What COVID safety precautions are organizers taking and are they enough? Well, for starters, there will be no fans like you suggested. Everybody is supposed to be wearing masks at all time, even in the, in the Olympic Village when they're not sleeping or eating. That Olympic Village is where the athletes stay during the games. And there are other precautions in place. The reason why they've gotten a lot of criticism is because as was pointed out in the New England Journal of Medicine, they are still putting multiple athletes in a room. Best scientific practices would have each individual athlete staying in a different room, their own room. Also, the International Olympic Committee is not providing masks to participants. Very sensible to give them high quality N95 masks. Instead, we have a sort of BYOM situation, a bring your own mask situation. And those are just some of the things that are concerning health officials as the games get underway. And the athletes had to sign a waiver, which you've told me is not uncommon, but this one really stands out. How? Well, as you pointed out in the lead-in, I was an athlete myself, so I've signed many a waiver, to truth be told, but this one has some really striking elements in it. It says right there in black and white that should an athlete contract coronavirus or even die from it, that they cannot pursue legal recourse or hold the organizers of the Tokyo Games liable. 
that to me, even as someone who signed many a waiver, was quite bracing. And it's not just me alone, actually. Originally, this document was shared with me by a Tokyo-bound athlete who wanted to get my take on it and who themselves was very concerned about having to sign something like this. But if you want to participate in the Olympics, each athlete must sign this waiver. And Jules, I've heard this Olympics described as the no fun Olympics. What kind of experience do you think the athletes are going to have? Well, typically the Olympics are about bringing cultures together and having meaningful conversations, sharing ideas and, and cultural elements. That's actually discouraged at this Olympics. In fact, what a lot of people like about the games is their sort of audacious practicality, having all these people come from around the world from different countries, some 200 plus countries. Well, this time the audacious and practicality could actually create a super spreader event. And that's why I think you're hearing this sort of no fun discourse passing through right now, because athletes are actually encouraged not to talk to each other, not to exchange in the ways that they've been encouraged to do so in the past, and there won't be fans. And so it's going to be a cavernous experience, very transactional experience, uh, but still some amazing athletes will be on hand. But what about for viewers? What do you think the games will be like to watch? It'll be very different. There's no question about it. The people who are running the Olympics on the broadcasting networks have decisions to make in regards to will they pipe in fake sound, as many of the sporting events did during the coronavirus pandemic here in the United States, for example. Um, but there will definitely be a very different set of narratives around these Olympics. It's always about overcoming adversity for individual athletes. But this time it'll be about the whole Olympics overcoming adversity to make it to this point. In our discussions prior to past Olympics, we've talked about athlete activism. What do you expect to see in these games? Well, for me, that's one of the most interesting things to keep an eye out for. After all, I am a card-carrying political scientist, so I need to be concerned with such matters. But recently, the International Olympic Committee issued new guidelines on a very controversial rule in the Olympic Charter that essentially outlaws political activism at the games. But because of the fact that we're living in this intense uh, Black Lives Matter extended moment, this intense Me Too extended moment. We have a lot of athletes who are politically engaged. In fact, I think it's fair to say we're living in the athlete empowerment era right now. And a lot of people are primed to speak out on the important issues of our times around racial and social justice. The new guidelines say that athletes can do that in particular spaces. They just cannot do it on the podium. They cannot uh, engage in political activism on the field of play. One tiny thing that I find really interesting is that the International Olympic Committee on their official Olympic channel, they have a special segment on John Carlos and Tommy Smith, who your viewers will know were the two athletes from the United States who put their fists in the air at the 1968 Olympics to protest uh, for black freedom and human rights. And even though they're celebrated on the Olympic channel as quote unquote legends, anybody were to do that kind of political activity at the Tokyo 2020 Olympics, they would be in serious trouble. That kind of activity and protest is actually banned. So it's really set up an interesting moment for us all to keep an eye on as the Olympics proceed. And we have a, a little over a minute or a minute and a half. I wonder which athletes you'll be watching closely. Well, because I'm a politics guy, I'm going to pick people who are political. First of all, the U.S. women's national team of soccer, who's been very outspoken for pay equity. I think they deserve our support. Plus, they have a number of athletes, many with uh, Pacific Northwest ties, like Megan Rapinoe, for example, who've been out front 
for Black Lives Matter and for all sorts of equality, which is really important right now. So I'm, I'm really keen to follow them. There's also a hammer thrower from the United States named Gwen Berry, who at the trials recently went on the medal stand, turned away from the flag as the national anthem played and held up a shirt over her head that said, activist athletes. So we'll be having to keep an eye on her as well. Finally, I'm really interested in Allison Felix, the five-time Olympian from the United States, first time Olympian with a child in her life. And she's been interesting because she played a role in the Los Angeles 2028 bid. And she really had her eyes open by that experience and has been quite critical of the Barons at the International Olympic Committee. So, hey, there's a chance that she might speak out on the medal stand as well. And which event will you be really wanting to watch? Definitely soccer all the way. I love watching Olympic soccer. And so go USA women. And just about 20 to 30 seconds for a final thought, Jules. Well, you know, this is one of those situations where the Olympics, as you pointed out at the top of the segment, I do not believe they should be happening. I think we're taking a gamble with public health. At the same time, we're putting our athletes out there in harm's way. But, you know, they're there and we need not devote ourselves to the depth of complexity. We can both cheer for our favorite athletes and critique the Olympic machine at the same time. Thank you, Jules Boykoff, for joining us. Always a pleasure to have you here. And thank you also to my first guest, U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Remember, you can get this episode and previous episodes of Straight Talk as a podcast. Search for KGW Straight Talk. Now we're off for the next few weeks to make way for Olympic programming. Enjoy the Olympics, and we'll see you soon for Straight Talk.